22. Luke chapter 22. Uh, Kevin's been going through a series and uh, we'll be picking it back up next week called For Christ for Clanton, talking about our mission here as a church and what God might have for us in our community. And while this isn't officially a part of the series, after talking about it, he and I feel like prayer is going to play a big part in that. And I'm hoping that we see that as we go through today. Um, the title of my sermon, uh, by the way, page 882, uh, the title of my sermon is just prayer. So um, that's how creative I am, that when I was trying to think of something really cool to call a sermon on prayer, I just went with prayer. Um, clearly my wife's a little more creative than I am, but, uh, but Luke chapter 22 um, so, like I said, Kevin asked me to preach on prayer this morning, and as I started studying, this became, I mean, honestly, it became an increasingly daunting topic to preach on, really, for two reasons. Um, number one, prayer's a pretty enormous topic, right? The Bible has a lot to say in a lot of different places about what prayer is, how it functions, how it's supposed to play a part in our lives. The, the counsel of the Bible when it comes to prayer is enormous, and so trying to select a passage was pretty difficult. So just know on the front end, this sermon's not going to say everything there is to say about prayer. I wish it could, but I didn't tell you guys to pack a lunch. Um, but it's, it's a big topic. And so I'm hoping that this begins to scratch the surface of the subject of prayer uh, when we see Jesus here praying in the garden. But, uh, but it's not going to be exhaustive. Uh, second reason I think this, this sermon in particular was difficult to... I'll keep going out there, sorry. Uh, the reason why this subject was really difficult to really prep for is because I'm not very good at prayer, right? And that's one thing that becomes increasingly painfully obvious as you start studying for a sermon on prayer is that you don't do it very well. And I don't think there's anyone in here that would stand up and say, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well at prayer. This is a regular part of my life. I don't feel any conviction that I need to pray more or pray better. We fail to pray as we should, and so it's... Uh, it is, in that sense, a very convicting topic to talk about. Uh, so that, you know, that that's how I feel about prayers. I don't do it very well. I feel like that probably resonates with you as well. One theologian called prayer the greatest neglected discipline. Uh, that it's such a, a vital part of our Christian life, and yet it's the one we neglect the most. Um, so my goal today is not to make prayer seem more complicated than it is. In fact, my, my goal is to do the opposite. It's to almost uh, demythologize prayer and make it seem more accessible, more doable, more beautiful and inviting than maybe how we see it right now. Uh, so basically our, our thesis for this morning... Caleb, would you go to the next slide for me there? Uh, our thesis for this morning is on the night Jesus was betrayed, He modeled for us the key elements of what prayer looks like. And so if you'll look with me in Luke 22, we'll be in verse 39. Just to give you a little bit of context, this is immediately after Jesus gives uh, the Last Supper there with His disciples. Uh, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread is what they call it, which means Passover. So Jesus celebrates Passover with His disciples. And then He institutes the Lord's Supper, right? Breaks the bread, drinks the wine with His disciples. And immediately after praying... Um, I believe it's Mark tells us that right after praying, Jesus leads them in a hymn, they sing together, and then they head to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was located. Judas has already left to betray him at this point, so Jesus knows that the hour he's been talking about has finally come. So we're going to pick up in verse 39. It says that he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. 
And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's Word. Let's pray and ask Him to help us understand it this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Spirit is what illuminates Your Word to our hearts. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that You would speak clearly through Your Word. Lord, that Your words would be far better than any I could come up with on my own. Lord, that You would help us to comprehend what You are saying to us. Lord, that we would find ourselves convicted, but also encouraged in light of Your love. Lord, we love You and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is told in each of the four Gospels and they all kind of tell us different parts of the story. Uh, So if you want to write this down, this is where they are in the other Gospels. It's Matthew 26. Uh, Mark chapter 14 and then John chapter 17 gives us the greatest detail about the prayers that Jesus prayed. But to just sort of summarize these accounts, right, kind of put them together. Jesus brings the disciples, minus Judas, he's already gone to betray Jesus. Jesus brings the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And when he gets there, one gospel account tells us that he leaves the majority of the disciples at the gate, but he takes three in with him. He takes um, Peter, James, and John, kind of his inner circle. And so they come inside the garden, and Jesus says, now you stay here, kneel down, and I want you to watch, and I want you to pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus says that he goes just a, a stone's throw from the disciples, and he kneels down to pray because he said... His quote was, My soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. So he goes to pray. He kneels down. He begins his prayer like this. In verse 42, he says, Father. That one word, we want to stop there for just saying, this is point number one, is that prayer addresses God as Father. This is one of the things that Jesus modeled for us all throughout his ministry, was that prayer always, for the Christian, addresses God as Father. But I wonder how many times we read over this and we never stop to think about the fact that Jesus called him that and why he called him that. What I want you to see is that Jesus calling God Father was not just a formality. It wasn't just a nice sentiment, a nice gesture. When Jesus called God's Father, God, when Jesus calls God Father, it reveals the very nature and essence of their relationship. John 3.16, right, one of the, probably the most well-known verse in all the Bible says that, for God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Jesus is, in reality, the Son of the Father. But Jesus goes even further, right? We we co-sign on that. We get that. John chapter 17, Jesus says this, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, with the glory that I had with You before the world was. See, from eternity, Jesus existed in perfect fellowship with God the Father. There's always been this intimate fellowship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They existed together together. 
from eternity. They have no beginning and they will have no end. Jesus is the Son of the Father and has always been so. He goes on in John 17, there at the end of the chapter, and he says that he was loved by the Father from before the foundations of the world. Before anything else was created, God loved Jesus and Jesus loved God the Father. There was a love within the Trinity. God echoes this in Jesus' baptism. If you remember in Luke chapter 3, Jesus goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. And it says that a voice from heaven sounds out and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And so in calling God Father, as He had so many times, Jesus is reminding us of this truth. And this is where it all begins for us. Is that God really, really loves Jesus. And He's really pleased with Jesus. God really, really loves Jesus. And He's totally pleased with Jesus. And because of that, God is always attentive to the prayers of Jesus. He's always ready to hear Him. And I think we have to start here, right? We have to start and kind of gaze on this reality that God is in love with Jesus and is totally pleased with Him. And Jesus loves the Father. There's a mutual love there, a fellowship there. Because to me, it makes it all the more shocking that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray, do you remember what He tells the disciples to call God? Calls Him Father, right? He says... You then pray like this, Our Father who art in heaven. Right? And he goes on through the Lord's prayers, we call it now, but God, God wants us to call Him Father. Jesus commands us to call God Father. The question is, is this the way that we address God when we pray? Is this the image that we have of God when we pray? That we're talking to our Heavenly Father. So, here's the question though. Why would Jesus tell us to call God Father? Maybe it's a couple of things, right? Maybe, maybe He was commanding them to call God Father because they had done enough to get on His good side, right? Like they had done enough to finally win God over and achieve like varsity level Christianity. So they get to call God Father while everybody else is stuck calling Him God or Lord. Which those things are still true, right? Or, was it that God had stopped being simply God or the Creator? No, that's not true either. See, the reality is, God still is all of those things. But God, in Jesus, commands His people to pray to Him as Father, not because of anything they had done. They're praying to God as Father. We get to pray to God as Father because of what Jesus was about to endure when He left the garden. Jesus could look at His disciples and say, pray like this, our Father. He could tell us, call God Father, because Jesus was about to go and endure the cross. See, so often I think when we view our salvation, we view salvation as being just being saved from our sins. When we think about salvation, we think that we've just been saved from punishment. And that's so true. I can't emphasize how true that is. We have been saved from the punishment of our sins by Jesus' death on the cross. But there's even more to it than that. We haven't just been saved from punishment. We've been saved to a relationship with the Father. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6 says this, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law 
that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This isn't a relationship that every person on the planet gets to enjoy. It's not that every person ever born, every person on the face of the earth right now gets to call God Father just because they were created by Him. We get to address God as our Father because He actually is, right? This is something we get to call Him because we are the redeemed people of God. So Jesus doesn't just save us from sin. He saves us to a relationship with the Father. So we don't address God as Father just as a nice Christian sentiment. We address God as Father because that's actually who He is to us now. The same love that God has for Jesus, the way that God is pleased in Jesus, that same love that He has for Jesus is the same love with which He loves you now. Him being pleased in Jesus, He's pleased in us now. Because we did anything to deserve it? No, of course not. Because Jesus went to the cross. And people that believe in that get to call God Father. But what does it mean that God is our Father? Like, How does that practically impact our prayers? Surely we can call God just about, you know, not anything. But we can call Him Lord, we can call Him Savior, you know, Heavenly Father, you know, whatever. We, we can call Him a number of things, but why is it important that Jesus tells Him to call God Father? I think that whenever we call God Father, it actually changes the way that we view prayer. Um, there's a, a photo, so I really like history. And I particularly am fascinated by the 60s, which I know some of you are going, come on, man, I was alive in the 60s, I was a teenager in the 60s. Uh, forgive me, but that's, that's very much history to me. So, um, But I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the 60s, particularly you know, the Kennedys and, uh, and all that. So one of my favorite pictures of all time is there's a picture of uh, John F. Kennedy uh, sitting in the Oval Office at the Resolute Desk. And you've probably seen this photo, right? There's a, a door, I believe it was FDR, had this door built to go at the foot of the desk so that no one could see his wheelchair when he sat behind the desk, right? It enclosed the front of the Resolute Desk. And there's a photo of JFK sitting in the Oval Office, and that door on the front of the desk is open, and there's Jack Jr., right? John F. Kennedy Jr. sitting there playing at his father's feet while his dad works, right? And I, I think that's... Such an iconic photo because, for one, I mean, JFK was the most important person in the world at that time, right? The leader of the free world. And there's his son playing at his dad's feet while he reads a briefing on something going on that pertains to national security. And JFK puts the brochure down and he's sitting there smiling at his son. And it's an interesting photo to me because who else could have that kind of access who else in the world could have walked in and crawled under the Resolute desk to play with a toy car in the Oval Office? Nobody. The only person who had that kind of access to the President of the United States was his son. And he was pleased to have his son in there. He was pleased to have his son be a distraction, if you will. He didn't mind because he loves his son. The most important person in the universe... Didn't mind having his son come and crawl up in his lap and call him dad. Didn't matter what time of day. Didn't matter what meeting was going on. And it's like that with us and God now. Then the same way the president didn't mind being bothered by the son, 
God doesn't mind being bothered by His children anymore. Right? Not that He ever did. Sorry, anymore is the wrong phrase. But God doesn't mind being bothered by His people. You and I aren't a nuisance to Him. He welcomes the prayers of His children. He welcomes the opportunity to spend time talking with His children. We have unlimited access to Him now. Tim Keller often says that no one could wake a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water but the child of the king. There's no request we can have that's too small. No problem that's too small. Anything that is on our heart, we can approach the king and creator of the universe... And it's like crawling up in our dad's lap. And he's pleased. He's pleased to hear our prayers. It means we don't have to grovel, right? You and I don't have to come before the Father with a prepared speech. We don't have to come and impress Him with our many words. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 not to do that. We don't come with a fear of condemnation or a fear of shame. You and I get to approach the Father without fear. And this is why, because just as the Father really, really loves Jesus, He now really, really loves His people. And listen, I don't know if that's the relationship you have with your dad. I'm pretty fortunate. And I get to look back at at my relationship with my dad, and I get to see sort of a picture of Jesus there. I get to think about memories that I had with him growing up. And even now at 24, getting to go and hug my dad. And there's a picture of Jesus. There's a picture of God the Father. I don't know if that's the relationship you had with your dad. But I can tell you this, is that this is the relationship God offers you in Jesus. God offers us the opportunity to come in and have him as a father, not just as a distant dictator, not just as an unconcerned captain over the world. He is our father. He's still God. He's still Lord. But He is a Father to His people. And listen, my dad doesn't stop being Roy Martin. Right? He doesn't stop being a small business owner. He's never stopped being those things. But to me, he's more than that. To me, the relationship goes deeper than that. I don't call him Mr. Martin. I don't call him Roy. I call him Dad because that's what he is to me. God doesn't stop being God. He doesn't stop being Lord. He doesn't stop being the one who holds the universe in the palm of His hands. But our relationship with Him as the people of God goes deeper than that. He is our Father. So understanding and believing this, and I promise I'm not going to spend this much time on every point, okay? You all just know that. But if we understand this truth and we believe it, this completely transforms our prayer life. This is central to what it means to be a believer. is to understand God as being our Father. So church, when we pray, let's address God as Father because that's how Jesus told us to pray and because that's who He is. He is our Father. So not only do we pray to God as Father, point number two is that prayer asks God to act. Prayer asks God to act. Verse 42, Jesus begins His prayer... And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What is Jesus asking here? He says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. The cup refers to somebody's portion. Jesus' portion was that he was assigned to bear the wrath of God towards the sin of the world. 
God's wrath that had been stored up towards our rebellion, towards our sin, Jesus' cup to drink was He was going to come and bear the full weight of that wrath on our behalf. And Jesus is knowing that this is coming. Jesus knows this is why I'm here. This is why I entered into the world. This is where I'm going. But what was He really agonizing over, right? I think verse 44 says that being in agony. What was the agony? Was it just the brutality of the cross? Crucifixion is the most brutal way to die that I think has ever been created by human beings. I mean, literally, it was designed to suffocate you. Not to mention the beatings you took beforehand, being hung by nails through your wrists, having to push yourself up for breath by a nail through your feet. And eventually, you get you give out and you just suffocate hanging there. It's a slow death. That's brutal. That's worth being in agony over. But is that why Jesus was really in agony? The answer is no, that there's more to it, right? Jesus knew that when He went to the cross... For the first time ever, not just within our understanding of time, but from eternity, Jesus had never been separated from fellowship with the Father. He and the Father were one. And He knew that when He went to the cross and the sins of the world, the sins of people like you and me, were put on Him, there was going to be a separation for the first time in His existence. He was going to feel... What you and I feel, the separation from God because of sin. And Jesus, being the pure, spotless Lamb that He was, that agonized Him to be separated from the Father. So He knows that He's approaching this point, and He asks God, is there any other way? Is there anything else we can do? What I think is fascinating here is that Jesus doesn't mind asking God to change the circumstances. He doesn't mind asking God to act, to come and do something different. Jesus was perfect. He was without sin. He asked God to intervene and it wasn't unholy for Him to do so. It wasn't unholy for Him to ask God to act, to intervene. And I worry that sometimes that we don't ever really see God show up and move in power because we don't ever ask God to act or to intervene, to show up in an amazing way. Andrew Murray writes a ton of books on prayer. And one of the things that he said, Steve Tipton recommended this book to me this week, and one of the things that he said was that so often we fail to see God move because our prayer requests are so small that we wouldn't know if He showed up or not. We play it safe with our prayers. We don't ask God to do bold things. We play it safe with our prayers. And particularly in Reformed circles, right? We, we tend to think that if I ask God to intervene, to change my circumstances, to do something miraculous, that that somehow affects the sovereignty of God. Like somehow it's not me believing that He's really in control. Jesus didn't mind praying and asking God to change His circumstances. He didn't mind asking God to do something different. So, But here is the question though. If God is really in control, if God is sovereign, and by the way this church believes that, that there's nothing outside of God's control, why would we pray 
boldly? Why would we ask God to do miraculous things? And here's what I think the Bible shows over and over and over again. Is that God in His sovereignty, He never stops being in control. He uses the prayers of His people to accomplish His purposes. God uses the prayers of His people to accomplish His sovereign purposes. There's a passage in Acts where we see this laid out, or not in Acts, excuse me, in Exodus, where we see this laid out so clearly. Moses has been leading the people, and you know, the fools down there, they, they throw their jewelry in and make a golden calf, right? Moses comes down, shatters the, shatters the tablets, and God says, I'm gonna wipe them out. I'm done. I'm about to destroy these people. Moses, you just get behind me, and I'm gonna end this, and I'm gonna raise up a new nation through you. And Moses goes and intercedes before the Father, begs Him not to destroy the people, reminds God of His promises, that you said you would make a great nation out of this people. You can't destroy these people. And the Bible says that God repented. It's the literal word there. It's such a confusing passage. God doesn't repent. So did God change His mind? Is He a liar? No. He led Moses to pray that prayer. And God used the prayer of Moses to spare the people. It was always in God's plan to spare the people, but He used the prayer of Moses to do it. God uses the prayers of His people to accomplish His purposes on the earth. So to put another way, there are things that God simply will not do unless His people pray for it. There are things that God will not do unless His people stop and ask. And this is why we have this prayer time carved down in the middle of our service now to pray for God's gospel to go out to the world is because God's going to use the prayers of His people to make that happen. But why does God choose to operate this way? He's in control. Why not just snap His fingers and just make it happen? And I think the answer is because God's goal isn't like ours. It's not just to get quick results. His desire is that His people would ask big, bold things of Him and that we would persevere in prayer and that we would depend on seeing Him move. Church, I really, really believe that God is waiting to do things, maybe in our personal lives, in the world around us, in our country, in the life of our church. And He will not act until His people seek His face in prayer. It's not because His hands are tied. It's because He desires to do a work in us as He's doing a work around us. There are things God will not do unless we begin to seek Him in prayer. Point number three. Point number three. Sorry, one more thing I want to say on that point real quick. Sorry. I'm going to give you whiplash there. Jesus says in John 14, 13, He says, Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified. Listen, as believers, we are always praying that God would be glorified. No matter what the request is, no matter how big or small, our God is that God would always be glorified through the answering of that prayer. So let's ask big things of God. Let's ask Him to save people. Let's ask Him to heal sicknesses, to mend broken homes, broken marriages. Let's ask Him to move in power in our community. Let's ask Him to work in the hearts of our children. Let's ask Him to glorify Himself throughout all the world and to raise up missionaries who are passionate about making this happen. All that He may be glorified. 
But let's pray boldly. Point number three is that prayer submits to God's will. Verse 42 also. Jesus asks, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. And then He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. On the heels of asking God if there's any other way, He immediately says, but you're in charge. I submit to your will. In Matthew's account of this story, he records Jesus saying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. As Jesus began to feel this separation from the Father... In his agony and in his distress, he wasn't afraid to ask God to intervene to change his circumstances, but he ultimately submitted to the will of the Father. Our prayers have to do both. We boldly ask God to act while ultimately submitting to His will, trusting that in whatever way He chooses to answer us, it will accomplish two purposes every time. It will be for His glory and it will be for our good. No matter how God answers our bold prayer requests, no matter what they may be about, He will always answer them according to what will bring Him the most glory and bring us the most good. And those two things go together. He will always answer our prayer requests, but it may not be always in the way we want. But it will always be in the way that brings Him the most glory and us the most good. My friend Ryan had this to say about this passage. He said, depending on your background depending on what denomination you were raised in, we either jump straight to, Thy will be done, and we never ask big things of God, we never ask Him to intervene or act or do anything amazing, or we only pray for Him to change the circumstances, to intervene, to do something awesome, and we never actually submit to His will. Christian prayer does both. Christian prayer will always do both. And this is one of the major blind spots of the prosperity, name it and claim it theology, right? Is that God will always answer the prayers of His people, but it's not always going to be in the way that we want. But as the people of God, we can always rest in knowing this, that we can ask big, bold things of God, and no matter how He answers prayer, even if it's in ways we don't understand, it will be for His glory and our good every single time. Tim Keller said this, he said, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that He knows. God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything He knows. Romans 8.28, even better, says this, God works all things for the good of those that love Him. Every time, no matter how things shake out, no matter how God answers, it will always be in a way that brings Him the most glory and brings us the most good. And look, in this instance, God did not change the circumstances. He doesn't offer another way because Jesus' death was the only way for us to be saved. It's the only way for His church to be saved. The crucifixion of Jesus was going to bring God the most glory and His people the most good. That's why God didn't offer another way. The cross of Jesus was going to bring Him the most glory and His people the most good. And so Jesus submitted to that, and He went. Number four, and finally, and I'll keep this brief, prayer satisfies our hearts in God. Prayer satisfies our hearts in God. Verse 43, it says, And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven, strengthening Him. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly. And His sweat became like great drops of blood, falling to the ground. Alright, so let's, let's stop there. An angel appears from heaven, strengthens him. 
And then in verse 44, it says that in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So get this, all right, track with me for a second. Jesus prays for God to change his circumstances, to act, to intervene, and God says no. His agony didn't relent. His circumstances didn't change. So what does Jesus do? He prays harder. Why? Why would Jesus do that? And it's because Jesus' satisfaction and His comfort wasn't in a change in circumstances. It was in having fellowship with His Father. His circumstances didn't change. But His comfort, His great satisfaction was in having God. So listen, the last point of this isn't to undo the rest of the message. We still pray for God to change circumstances and do big things. We submit to His will because we trust Him, but also because God is our great treasure. He is the living water that our souls need. He is the bread of life that we crave. God is our great treasure. And so whenever pain and trials and difficulties come our way, when the answer is no, don't believe the lie that prayer has lost its benefit. Instead, let these things teach you the greatest benefit of prayer, which is the fact that we get God. He is our great treasure. And the greatest benefit we can find in prayer is even in the face of God's no, even in the face of unrelenting agony and circumstances and things that don't go our way, He is still there. He's still our treasure. He is still the love that will not let us go. When we pray, we not only get to enter into the presence of the Creator of the universe, right? And this goes back to point number one. We are getting to crawl into the lap of our Father, to someone who loves us and cares for us and desires to hear our prayers. But I think we only see this as being a great treasure if we do truly see Him as our Father. If He's just a distant dictator or a God who is detached from the problems of this world, if you feel like you have to earn His love and attention, then fellowship with Him through prayer will be a burden and not a treasure. God has made Himself our Father, and that changes everything. So prayer addresses God as Father. Prayer asks big, bold things of God. And prayer submits to His will. And then finally, like we said, prayer satisfies our hearts in God. So, believer, if you are trusting in Christ, a few quick points of application on prayer. His spirit of adoption now lives within you. You are a child of the Creator of the universe. And the love that God has for His Son, He now has for us. So how do we begin to make prayer part of our lives? Three things we see from Jesus real quick. Verse 39, it said that it was His custom to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went regularly to the Garden. He had a a place where He prayed. I think that one of the biggest things we need to see about our prayer life is that sometimes having an established place completely revolutionizes our prayer life. I don't know if that's a room for you in the house. For me, it's a certain chair at the dining room table. Okay, But whatever it is for you, maybe it's going and walking at Goose Pond Park. But having a place seems to give us a sense of a regular prayer time. A place helps. But it was his custom to go there, right? It says, as he was accustomed to doing, he went to the Mount of Olives. This was a habit for him. 
This became something that was common practice for him. And then thirdly, he viewed prayer as proactive, not merely reactive. A lot of times, prayers are panic button, right? Jesus didn't view prayer this way. He had been praying in the garden regularly before he ever got to this point. Before the trials and the circumstances ever hit, Jesus made prayer a priority, made it a habit. Then he goes to his disciples and he says twice, just in this passage alone, pray that you may not fall into temptation. He was telling his disciples, you're going to endure more than you know. When I'm gone... When I go through this crucifixion, this fake trial, you're going to go through more than you can possibly fathom. You and I do not know what trial awaits around the corner. But God says, go ahead and be praying and preparing so that even in the face of those trials, you wouldn't fall into sin. It's proactive, not just reactive. Don't wait for things to go go poorly before we start praying. So those are three things I think we can do to build in some regularity to our prayer life. But then... In closing, to the unbeliever. If you're in here and you've never viewed God this way, if the only relationship with God you've ever thought of is one where you had to earn His favor and do enough to get on His good side, then my prayer for you and our church's prayer for you is that you would see God in a completely new way. That we serve a God who came down, stepped into human existence, was willing to put His Son on a cross and pour His wrath out on Him so that you and I could have a relationship with Him as our Father. And all He requires from you is that you trust in Christ, that you you stop trying to be enough on your own. So the call to the believer and to the not yet a believer, we hope, is that we trust in Christ. And then doing so, we approach God as our Father. Let's pray.